Now let's turn to the book of the Acts, chapter 4, and verses 1 to 12. Acts 4, verse 1, And as they spake unto the people, the priests, and the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees, came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people, and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them, and put them in hold unto the next day, for it was now eventide. Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about five thousand. And it came to pass on the morrow that their rulers, and elders, and scribes, and Annas the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and as many as were of kindred of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, You rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to the, power of, and to the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which is set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Now turn back to the Gospel of Luke, if you would please, where we will begin the discussion. Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, and um, the Lord speaks to his disciples, verse, and verse 45, Luke 24, verse 45, Then opened he their understanding, that they might understand the Scriptures, and said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer, and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and ye are witness of these things, and behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. Now, with the subject of the preaching of the gospel and personal evangelism, and we want to look at these passages and consider, first of all, the command to preach the gospel. And ask the question, what does the Lord expect of me? When we go out to preach the gospel or personally evangelize others, what is the Lord expecting of us? We need to know our mission. Be clear on what he expects of us. And we'll see whether Peter was clear on what he was expect, what was expected of him and how he performed. And so we will also look in Acts chapter 4 at preparation for preaching and ask the question, how can I be better equipped to preach the gospel or to share the message. We will look specifically at the elements of the gospel message. Are my content and expressions biblical? And the presentation of the message, how can I make the message interesting and clear? Now, just because of time constraints, there are quite a number of sermons of the apostles in the book of the Acts that we could consider. It would be a long discussion if we were to take chapter 17, or one of the long, chapter 2 even, one of those long sermons, very valuable, very rich in instruction about how to preach the gospel, 
But I've just selected a very short sermon, a message preached by, by Peter, uh, given by Peter, and we will be able to analyze it. And there's lots of statements around it, I think, that can be instructive to us to help us with preaching and sharing the gospel message. Peter, in the book of the Acts, they divide up, the experts all divide up the sermons and they talk about, they even use technical terms like paranetic and apologetic and charismatic and all these different terms. But I just want you to notice the simple part. Seven sermons by Peter, if you will. The first and the last one, he preached to believers. Chapter one, you'll recall, to the believers when they were selecting Matthias as the, the, the substitute for, for Judas. And then you have chapter 15, he preached a little mini-sermon there when they were gathered together with the believers and the elders and the apostles there in the conference in Jerusalem. In between, you have five gospel messages in chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, and chapter 10, and you can look at those each one. We're going to look the first one of those five. He spoke to the people just outside the, the temple. And then you have, uh, in chapter uh, 3, uh, you have him speaking as well to that crowd. And then in chapter 4 and 5, where we have read, he's speaking to the Jewish readers, uh, leaders. And then in chapter 10, he speaks to the Gentile crowd there with Cornelius. So we're going to focus in just on this sermon. A miracle has been performed in chapter 3, and now the response to that by the Jewish leaders is they summon the preachers together, and they get this great opportunity to preach. And we're going to look at their, at their message uh, that was presented there. But we'll start with just the command to preach. You know the commission is given in chapter in the last chapters of Matthew and Mark, and uh, now Luke. Uh, we don't find that commission so much in John, but you will find at the book beginning of Acts where he speaks about being witnesses. And so the commission is clear. We're just going to focus in again on just one part that is given to us in Luke's gospel, and we'll begin there with a discussion and look at the command to preach the gospel. What does the Lord expect of us? If we're not clear on what he expects, we'll be floundering around, and we may not complete his expectations. Now, I am privileged to be surrounded by two much older men than myself, and uh, they've promised to contribute a lot, and I look forward to their help. I notice <coughs> in Luke's gospel, is that what we're commenting on first? Yep, yes, please. I notice in Luke's gospel that there are two truths <clears throat> that are recorded in verse 47 with respect to this preaching. The first is the truth of uh, re repentance, and the second is the truth of remission. And uh, it might just be worth mentioning that repentance is essentially the judging of ourselves. We take the word of God that's been given, we apply it to ourselves, we realize that we're guilty of the charge, and we repent of the person we are and the ways that we are. Mm -hmm. And upon that, there is the remission, and the remission is maybe more the Godward aspect, where it's the um, exemption from the consequences of the sins to, from which I've repented. So would it be right to say that you have the two aspects here? One is the personal aspect, we repent, and the other is the Godward aspect, remission of sins is given. And you can't, you can't uh, shortcut this, this message or cut it down. 
It's so easy to just think everybody knows they're a sinner. So, check, that's the manward side. Everybody doesn't really understand their sin. Did you really understand your sin before you were saved? The day you were saved, most of us didn't. We really, we had the words, but the reality of it, and the coming to agreement with God on it, and the seeing the way God sees us, which is, takes us back to the way he sees us in the word, that repentance needs to be constantly <clears throat> preached. Because you won't have the forgiveness of sins if you don't have repentance first. When Paul preached in, in Ephesus, and then he summarized it up, what did he say there? He preached repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. I was just going to mention uh, two things here. One, um, I like the little statement at the end of uh, that section, verse 48, ye are witnesses of these things. Mm -hmm. Now, none of us personally were witnesses, of course. We were not eyewitnesses of the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ. But the message that we preach is based on the, ir the irrefutable evidence of eyewitnesses. So when we present the gospel, it's good for us to always remember <clears throat> that we are preaching a message that in the language of 1 Timothy 1 and verse 15, is worthy that all should accept it. It's a faithful saying. It is based on historical events that actually happened and men that were eyewitnesses to those events, energized by their knowledge of the resurrected Christ, they took this message and they spread it as they were commissioned to do. And that is the message that we proclaim. So it's not a religion, it's not a creed, it's not a cult, it's not a philosophy, it's not a group of ideas. It is a message with a basis that is worthy that all should accept it. And I think it's important that we accept that, that, that we recognize that. The second thing I would mention is just to emphasize what John has already said. I, I don't want to come across at this conference, I hope I haven't to this point, and I don't want to start now. I don't want to come across as being negative towards everything that's happening in the broader evangelical world. That's not my purpose, and I'm not accountable for what others do. I am accountable to warn about the danger of what is out there creeping into our thinking. And there is a real danger of a clear gospel message being replaced by a message that is much more palatable and popular in our community. So it is much more palatable and popular to present a message that seems to appeal to people and make them comfortable than it is to present a message that at its core, and actually very early in its introduction, brings up the idea of sin, brings up the idea of personal accountability for sin, brings up the biblical concept of repentance from sin, and brings up the biblical truth of remission or forgiveness from sins. Now I am all for, I'm all for community barbecues, I'm all for community outreach, I'm all for vacation Bible schools, I'm all for anything that allows us to interact with people in our community, but not as a replacement for gospel preaching. As a substitute, no. As a way to reach people and win people and bring them under the sound of the gospel, then yes. But let's not lose our focus on the basic mission we have, which is to take the message of the gospel to those that need a savior. And at its core, the message of the gospel is, as we have here from the risen Christ, repentance and remission of sins.
And just to add to that, you will notice in this commission, the recording of the commission, as in the others, we are never told to be responsible for results. It's just a command to do something. So our responsibility is to be faithful to that command. Who doesn't want to see results? That's what we pray for. It should concern us when there aren't results or there are bad results, false professions, things like that. We should be burdened about that. But we are not going to be held accountable for the results. We are held accountable for our faithfulness to our, our mission. So what does he expect of us? He doesn't expect results. In fact, even here, just before they, went, they got the commission, it says that he had to open their mind. They were reminded of the, the limitations of the human being when it comes to truth and the need and the dependence upon the work of God. And so if they needed it, you go out with that and you realize that we need God to work to produce results. But we have to go out and fulfill our commission, which he lays out here in the preaching of repentance and remission of sins. And you know, no sooner has he stated these two truths about repentance and remission, but he encourages them to wait at Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. Mm -hmm. And that's the power of the Spirit. And does that not encapsulate the whole thing? Yeah. The repentance, as far as man is concerned, remission, as far as God is concerned, and what will bring that home to the individual and show God at work is the power of God's Spirit, which was obviously so evident yeah. at the beginning of the dispensation. Mm -hmm. And here the commission is actually, it is the word for public preaching of the gospel. Mark 16, it's the same word. It's the public <clears throat> preaching, the heralding, as you've often heard. That is a particular method that God has allowed and introduced and is used. John the Baptist preached. The Lord Jesus preached. The apostles preached. Not too long ago, I, I was presented with uh, the results of a survey that says that the most ineffective way to communicate anything is one man to be standing up in front of people and just talking. And the person who presented it to me was saying, this preaching thing has got to go. But you see, preaching is different. What's the difference between, let me ask my brother, what's the difference between preaching and any other kind of public speaking? Is there a difference? I'll tell you just from personal experience, you can give the technical answer, but from personal experience, um, I had a job at one time for the Ontario Ministry of Finance, and what part of my responsibility was doing presentations to the Premier and Cabinet, and uh, that was public speaking. You would have a topic, you would have material, you would prepare a presentation, you would go in and present your material, you would anticipate questions, and you would present options for the government to make decisions. Uh, it struck me, I was in my 20s at that time, but it struck me at that time, as I was doing this for my job, I also was asked to preach the gospel occasionally on Sunday nights and, and to help in gospel preaching. And something that really struck me was this. There's a fundamental difference between preaching and public speaking. Public speaking, if you knew your material, you prepared well, you knew your audience, you anticipated the questions, you laid it all out, it hardly ever went wrong. It hardly ever fell flat. It hardly ever went really badly because it was sort of all within your control and you could, you could present. Preaching, sometimes, you know, in the quietness, if some brethren will relate to this, in the quietness of your own study preparing, it all seems to come out so well. And then you get up on the platform and as Mr. Frank Piercy used to say, it's like shoveling fog. 
or like pushing a rope up a hill. Like it just, <laughs> nothing really flows. And I think that the essence of preaching is that it is a spiritual activity, engaging really in a spiritual warfare, if you will, empowered by the Spirit of God, three little words that you have in the middle of this commission, preached in His name among all nations, and we are simply instruments in the hand of God for proclaiming the truth of God. And we're completely dependent on Him for the empowering to do that. So I think it's quite different than just public speaking. It's confrontational in its nature. I don't mean obnoxious, but we are confronting people with divine truth. And we are relying on the Spirit of God to take that truth and rivet it into the hearts of those people to convict them. So it's fundamentally different than just doing a public presentation. The one added item is that unlike any kind of presentation or sales, um, I think we're reaching, trying to reach for something different. We're not just trying to touch emotion, and we're not even just trying to reach the will for a decision about the gospel. We're trying to reach the conscience. And that's something that's different. It's deeper. It's difficult. And that's why it makes people uncomfortable when you speak of sin and holiness and, and those kinds of things. So we're not selling the gospel to them, give them a, a convince them. And yet we preach with confidence. So that's the goal that I, uh, that I see here is that we're trying to, to, to really um, reach something that is, is necessary, that the gospel reach the conscience as a result. There's guilt and there's repentance that will follow. Can I just, I don't want to this seem like a curved ball, John, but you would know that throughout the Acts, there was a, <clears throat> there was a reasoning. Mm-hmm. What's the word used? The reasoned with them. And that word would um, involve the idea that as the apostle was speaking to the audience, response was coming back from the audience. Now, mm-hmm. I've never preached like that. I mean, maybe you have, but every time I've ever preached the gospel, maybe apart from an open air preaching, uh, the audience has sat and listened attentively to the message. What would your feelings be about response coming from the audience in the course of your preaching? What, how would, you, would you be comfortable with that? How would you deal with that? Have you had it? Because that seems to be what happens as the message goes out in the Acts. Uh, there are two things that come to mind is you can have that open air style. Yeah. It's, it's <clears> a little <throat> bit of, uh, un- can be uncomfortable because you don't know what's going to come. Mm. And what you might get might have a negative effect on somebody else yeah. who is there. <clears throat> so there is certain risk to that. It's not that there's a fear that there's no answers mm. because we do have answers. Mm. But in some ways, you can do that kind of preaching without actually getting the question, mm-hmm. by anticipating the it. question, yeah. Mm-hmm. So you anticipate the question, mm-hmm. and then you give the answer, and then you, it's kind of the way Paul writes Romans, where you, you, mm-hmm. you anticipate yeah. the mm-hmm. question, you say the question mm-hmm. that they're thinking in their mind, so it's as if it's happening, but you have it more under your control as a mm-hmm. speaker. But that's one, one of the words that is used. If you don't mind turning over to chapter 4, maybe we should, should go there now. You'll see that they spake unto the people, and they were preaching, which is a little different word. They were announcing in verse uh, 2. And then they were teaching. And there's all these different words. I think you can get maybe 10, 12 different words that, used, that are used in the Bible to describe the expressing or the sharing of the gospel. So we need all kinds, all kinds of methods and ways of speaking. But at the same time, when the commission was given, he selected preaching. So all of that together can be supporting and lead to, but 
Preaching, I think, is something we need to be careful we don't lose. Not because I'm looking for job security. It's because it's something that I think God uses. It's unique. And uh, people in the world won't understand it, and it may not be uh, something that studies will prove, but we have to operate by faith that that's what God says. So there are two extremes on that. One is we go to the extreme is that preaching is the only method. So don't say anything to anybody. Don't talk to them. Don't reason with them. Don't, don't communicate with them. Just get them to the preaching. That's one extreme. The other extreme is we don't need preaching. So that balance in there with the support to lead towards and to, to, to value God's method of preaching. And just to go back to what Andrew said, I mean, the, this chapter begins with an unqualified rejection on behalf of the people, the religious leaders of the day, with respect to this message. Yeah. And as a result of that, it was essential. I don't think we, as, I don't think gospel preachers should be deliberately offensive, but their message is essentially an offense, isn't it? Yes. Because it tells, the sin, it tells the sinner exactly what they are. And for these men, these were the men that were culpable in the matter of putting Christ to death. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, the message that they're going to bring is going to really probe right into their conscience and be offensive to them because he's effectively called them in chapter 2 murderers. Mm -hmm. When someone turns away from the gospel, it's very searching. Mm -hmm. Was it because I was offensive in my presentation, mm -hmm. my tone of voice, my word choice? Was it because of me? Or was it because the message bothered them and they would not, it was getting to them and they turned away from that? That's the offense that is permitted and anticipated at times in the scripture. Mm -hmm. And so it takes, we have to evaluate and uh, seek to present it as best we can, but realize that the message will cause some people uh, discomfort and hopefully with a view of repentance and salvation, but there may be those who will turn away because they do not want to deal with that message. Perhaps we could just then spend a few moments talking about preparing, the preparation for preaching, and how we can be better equipped. What can we learn from these men and how they were prepared, especially Peter, in this case, who was the speaker on this, this particular occasion? What's in your mind specifically on the preparation, uh, John? <clears throat> okay, um, there are some things that must have happened before he actually spoke. Right. So one of them, if you just come down to uh, uh, verse 8, it says, Then Peter filled with the Holy Ghost. So what does that mean? How, 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 what does that say about his life prior mm -hmm. to beginning the actual preaching of the message? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, we've always been taught, and I think it's an accurate thing, that we as God's people cannot have more of the Holy Spirit. But what can happen is the Holy Spirit can have more of us. And that's essentially what's involved in the filling of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has more of us. And I, I take it that what's involved in this is that for the Holy Spirit to have complete sway in our life, there needs to be the abandoning in our lives of anything that would obstruct or hinder the movement of the Holy Spirit within us. Do you think that's what's involved in this with Peter? He was a man, he was in a low state just not days, just days yeah. before it. He denied the Lord. And here was a man that's gone from oaths and curses, cursing the, uh, denying the Savior, 
to being filled with the Spirit. That encourages me in this respect. There could be only days between me feeling and being used by God. That's the greatness of our God yeah. in the matter of recovery. <clears throat> we, tend to, we can easily, pardon if I'm including you unfairly, but I think we tend to easily compartmentalize our lives. I have my Monday through Saturday, <clears throat> and then I have my Sunday when the brothers ask me to preach. Those are directly connected. Mm -hmm. Because what's happening then is going to have an impact on when I take the message. And I, we're talking a lot about preaching, but a lot of this applies to personal evangelism as well. That com it requires a search. Is there anything that I'm holding back? Is there any way I'm not submitting that being filled with the Spirit where he has control? It, it, is, a, it is a constant evaluation. And here, it's beautiful what it says after having that in his past, that Peter is filled with the Holy Ghost. And his failure in the past does not limit his filling here in the, in the future. And uh, that's one of the preparations. He's endowed. He's enclosed. It's, it's, it's real. The power of the Spirit that is in his, his preaching. So just to drive that point home then, in terms of a few specific applications, if you are a, a brother in the assembly today, um, and either in your own <laughs> local assembly or surrounding assemblies, or in a special effort for a week in the summer or whatever, you have a responsibility to preach the gospel. I think the point that John has just made is very valid, which is effectiveness in the hand of God as an instrument for gospel preaching or evangelizing is very closely linked to your spiritual condition. You can't live as you wish, do as you wish, and then think that you can just come up with a sermon, stand on a platform, and preach the gospel. It's a very, very serious thing to stand between God and men, to present a truth that has eternal consequence, and your spiritual condition is vitally linked to being engaged in that work. So don't take it lightly. Second application of that in general personal evangelism for brothers and sisters would be to apply that same truth. My effectiveness as a witness in the lives of those that God allows me to contact is a very serious thing. He is a God who will have all to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's God's desire. He wants to use you and He wants to use me. Think of the people that you have met in the past week at work or at school. For me to be an instrument that God will use to reach people in personal evangelism, it's very closely linked to my spiritual condition. My life, my testimony, my true spiritual condition is absolutely essential if I'm going to be an effective witness for Christ. One of the common worries for those of us who are younger is the concept of, I just don't feel like I can do it. I'm not capable. Now, I know there is capability, and that is, uh, I don't want to take away from that. Others will judge that. But at the same time, please understand, these were not pro professionally seminary graduates. These are not Pauls who were at the, field, at the feet of Gamaliel. These were, as it says down in verse uh, 13, the people knew that they perceived they were unlearned and ignorant men. And the word ignorant in the Spanish Bible is the word vulgar which always gives a bad impression because people think of a vulgar fisherman out there trying to preach the gospel and his language is pretty salty. That's not the idea. These were just common men, had no formal training. But you see, a man, even though he has not had formal earthly training, he may not have training in eloquence, <clears throat> in elocution, 
and public speaking, but a man who is surrendered to God and has the power of the Holy Spirit is full of the Spirit. There's no telling what God can do with that man. Mm -hmm. So be encouraged. This should be an encouragement to all of us. It's not dependent on our past training. It is, it is valuable just to surrender and to let God work through us. I mean, here's, here's two examples here, <coughs> two examples of miracles. You go back to the feeding of the 5,000, and the Lord says to the disciples, give them to eat. He didn't say, I'm going to give them to eat. He said to the disciples, give them to eat. That was a command. Mm -hmm. And implicit in that command was this, I've given you the capability, through the power I've given you, to give these 5,000 to eat from five loaves and two fishes. What they said is this is, what is this amongst so many? They didn't exercise the power that was given to them in giving them to eat. So in that respect, they failed, and Christ fed them. You come to Acts 3, and the Lord's reminded them of the power that he's given to them as resurrected, as resurrected Christ, and here's a man who's impotent. What are they going to do? Are they going to go back to where they were when they fed the 5,000 and not perform it, or is Peter going to take the power that's been given them from Christ and make it happen? That's faith, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So what he said was this is, he didn't say, I'm sorry, the Savior's gone to heaven. I can't bring you, I can't cause you to rise. He just took the power that had been invested in him and said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And does that introduce faith? in the power that God has invested in us in our preaching. Because through this, through this, that's what gave them confidence to go on to greater and bigger things. So my, I guess my point is this, John, that if we don't take the power and exercise the power, we'll never quite discover what God could do in us exactly. and through us. Very good. <clears throat> Related to that is you will find that there, this is bookended by, by the same thing. In chapter 1, where are these men? They're in a prayer meeting. Where are they at the end of the chapter? In a prayer meeting. You see, that's that dependence on faith in God, is that what God could do. The prayer meeting before you preach the gospel, um, that's, not, that's not just to kind of get the, the preacher ramped up, geared up, hyped up, pump him up, up he goes, and wow, God help us. That is when we are crying out and expressing and, uh, our dependence on God. It's really. And so please, I, I hope this is unique to west of the Mississippi. But at times, it can be that brothers only come to a prayer meeting when it's their turn to preach. Well, it's good they know they realize they need, they need the help of God. But what about all the rest of us poor folks? Please come and help us pray. Because we need it just as much as you do. So the prayer meeting, balancing that out, that dependence, the spirit, and yet what God could do, we need to exercise that faith and move forward. Mm -hmm. Just two other brief things in, in preparation. Mm -hmm. Maybe one of this is a little more content, but preparation. Um, in each of the examples of the messages in the book of Acts, the men knew their audience. Good. And they prepared with that audience in mind. So the way that Paul preached, to use extreme examples, the way that Paul preached to the leaders of the Jews versus the way that Paul preached in Acts 17 to those in Athens is very different. The root message is still the same. Faith in Christ. 
Repentance. God commands all men everywhere to repent in Acts 17. But the knowledge of the audience tailored the way the message was brought to that audience. So I think we should do the same. I was maybe most forcibly impressed with that when I was asked to preach in Zambia, in Chitokoloki. And I found myself looking at, you know, things I had spoken on and things that I had prepared. And I just felt in myself a huge difference standing up in a village in Africa with an interpreter in Tolunda presenting a message to people versus standing in Toronto or New Jersey and presenting a similar gospel message. Just a knowledge of your hearers and how they are going to approach the truth that you're presenting to them. And the second thing in terms of preparation, and you see it here at the very end, is a knowledge of the Scriptures and getting into the Scriptures. You read through the sermons in the book of Acts, and you'll find that repeatedly they go back to the Scriptures and they quote the Scriptures. So, for example, in this, when you get down to verse 11, this is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Referring to Old Testament Scriptures, these hearers would have known that verse. They would have understood the context. They would not have liked the fact that the preacher was saying that verse is referring to you mm -hmm. and it's referring to Jesus of Nazareth. Mm -hmm. But I think for us, applying it to ourselves, gospel preaching and preparation for gospel preaching is much more than just Googling an interesting illustration. You know, Google a nice rescue story off the internet or a Google something that then you can build a little message around and present it, not being critical. But that's a fairly easy thing to do. It's not really preparation for gospel work. Preparation for gospel work is dependence on the Spirit of God, prayer, knowledge of the Word of God, and spending time in the Word of God, and then knowledge of the audience, if you can get that, that you'll be speaking to, so that you'll have a message suitable to their comprehension. The audience is actually identified here very specifically in these verses. And just to go confirm your point, in verse 1, we have mentioned about the influence of the Sadducees, and luckily some of the ones below in verse 5 were of the same mindset. What did the Sadducees not believe in? Resurrection. What does he preach? A resurrection. He goes right at what their issues are. So knowing the audience is really a very, very valuable uh, thing. Um, and just about the memorizing the Scripture. Thank you for bringing that up. You know, Peter was an unlearned ignorant. Please don't think that he was some kind of an ignoramus stumbling around trying to preach the gospel. Chapter 2, he doesn't pull out his iPhone with his uh, eSword application on it and read from the book of Joel. He quotes five verses. And then he doesn't go over to, to the Psalms and quote from two different Psalms, four verses from one and one from another. And he links them all together. Where did he get all that? Maybe it's because he had spent time with Jesus. Maybe it was a boy he had gone to the synagogue and... Uh, and Bethsaida, or nearby, to learn the scriptures, but memorizing them. One time, I was, I mentioned I was with Mr. Paisley, and one time he said to me, he, he, he was really hard on me, um, he said, boy, uh, you need to quote more scripture when you're preaching. And I knew what was coming. He had the ability to work at multiple levels, and he preached a fabulous gospel message, and I knew that I should be counting. And in a matter of about 25 minutes, he quoted over 50 gospel texts <clears throat> as he was preaching. And the reason he did it was to show me that it could be done, but he also believed, back to faith, the power of the Word of God unleashed on people. That's mm -hmm. where there's power. And to unleash that on people, that's where the Word of God, that the power can be. 
the Spirit using the Word of God. And so here, Peter quotes a verse he obviously had memorized ahead of time. John, would you agree that sometimes there's a danger that in order to introduce variety in our gospel preaching, we can maybe drift too far away from Calvary? Whereas the root of these men's preaching was this, Christ crucified and raised from the dead. Mm -hmm. And I think it's prudent to remember that. And I, I mean, I, I have never taken a gospel campaign like you have. And so I've no experience of that. And it must be tempting that as a month's meetings go on, that you think, right, where are we going to pull it from tonight? I'm not saying you'd be as, as, as um, say, say these things, but whatever we do, keep close to Calvary and the preaching and always get it back there at the earliest opportunity because that's what these men did. It was a challenge that I received and uh, was to go through the scripture and find all the clear gospel verses. And so I set out on that and in my little simplicity I came up with a list of 200 gospel texts. And then the man said to me, if that's what you have, why are you preaching out of, I forget what I had done. I thought I had some beautiful thing out of some strange passage. The plain text, to focus on the person of Christ. Why, why do we need to preach? You say, well, they already know. They already know John 3.16. If they really knew it, they'd be saved. Yeah, that's right. Preach it again. Mm -hmm. The basic gospel text. And yes, it requires more work to go over it and to pray about it and get something fresh from the text. But in gospel series, uh, men who I've had the privilege of being with who can really preach, uh, they just go back over the same thing. And you say, well, don't they get tired of it? How can you get tired of it if it's fresh in your soul? And so just preach them. Go back over these texts. And they really contain great truth in the gospel. Could I just make a comment? I know you're, we're probably down more in the content yeah, of the gospel fine. message now, but... Again, a trend that I, I sense, and I've actually had a couple of people tell me this is you know, a much better approach, um, a more modern way, is just general Bible preaching. You know, just open the doors to the community and we're going to go through, um, pick a book. You know, we're going to just go through the book, general Bible teaching, uh, expositionally go through a passage and let the Spirit of God apply as He sees fit. Whether people are saved or not, they'll just, so He'll apply it. We'll just... Family Bible Hour, and we'll just present Bible truth. Interesting, that's not what the evangelists did in the book of Acts. No. They were dealing with an audience that knew the Old Testament scriptures, at least in the early chapters of the book of Acts. They didn't do just a general exposition of a chapter in Isaiah or a page in their scroll. They took specific quotations from the Old Testament scriptures to make a particular point that was relevant to the needs of those people, and they presented to people who did not know Christ a message that focused on repentance, remission of sins, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. That's the gospel. That is the message that we have in our great commission for people who don't know Christ. And I would hate to see my generation be the generation where we throw in the towel on quote-unquote gospel preaching and replace it with general Bible teaching and just allow people to find themselves in the message. The preaching of the gospel is a specific message of man's need, the offer of salvation, man's responsibility for that offer, all based 
on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and the work that he did at the cross. So I make no apology for stressing the importance of maintaining a clear message of the gospel and a clear focus on the presentation of that message in the functioning of a local assembly. Excellent. Very good. So on the elements of the gospel message, we've already mentioned the idea of preaching Christ. I think some of our sisters probably know sometimes. They have to listen to us. And I think there's times when they go home and what do they say? He gave a real funny illustration. He was really dynamic. He really, I'm giving us the good, good preach. He was really interesting. But he never mentioned Christ. What a shame. We've missed it. So the lessons here are preach the word. Specific gospel texts that apply to the people. Second thing is to preach sin. You can see that here. He says, and the words are, in verse, um, I'm going to find it here, verse uh, 10, ye crucified. So he points out their sin to them. And you, in verse 11, the, uh, the builders uh, reject it or set it not. So he points out, now, we're not pointing out people and their sin. You, know, you, you know, not quite like that. That's not the idea. But taking the, the issue of sin to the people. Preach Christ, preach the word, and preach sin are the three things that we have covered so far. And you know, just to uh, accord with what Andrew said as far as the preaching is concerned, when you come over to First Corinthians 1, it specifically mentioned the Jews and the Greeks. There was messages particular to them that was different from what we teach in chapter 11, for example. So it was the preaching of the cross. It was specifically for the Jews and the Greeks. And you, we know the response from that chapter. So I would completely accord with that, that the message needs to be specifically for the unsaved and kept distinct from the type of teaching that you find in subsequent chapters. Mm -hmm. Two other elements here would be, first of all, you'll notice that he, he begins with an introduction. Okay? So, filled with the Holy Spirit, ye rulers of the people, elders of Israel, we this day be examined of the good deed done. So, uh, he relates to a current event, something that just happened that people are all thinking about. Taking that, and that's where he begins. He's got their attention now because he's going to talk about what just happened because that's what they're thinking about. So, things that are going on. There's lots of ways to begin. You know, pardon me from quoting all these great men, but I, I've learned a little bit from them. I never met him or heard him preach, but I've read about his preaching and talked to a lot of people who heard him preach, and that was Mr. Sidney Sayward and uh, Venezuela. Preached there for 50? 60 years. 60 years. He always told, said, and uh, uh, said that the, the young men, make sure you're clear on how you're going to begin and make sure you're clear on how you're going to end. Because all of us young men are guilty of doing uh, flybys, you know, where you come into land and then you go back up again, <laughs> and then you go around and you come in and come back, and you, you don't know how to end it. And then you kind of kind of half walk off the platform while you're still talking and just go into a mumble. I can see others have either heard, have either heard me or they've heard it elsewhere. The idea is to be clear and try and have it planned out ahead of time. Open air, you may not always have that option, but if you can, that's what we see here. It's a very clear beginning. And a, and, a, and a clear end here. And uh, also he uses an illustration. 
the concept of the stone. Where is he? It's at the temple. The stone. Builders reject it. Uh, an illustration. The master illustrator was the Lord Jesus. And to study how he illustrated and to be able to make the illustration, apply the illustration, you can see that these men had really been with Jesus. They had learned from him. But I do want to ask one thing here. Um, why is there no mention here of believing? Because the majority of our messages have believing in them. And faith is part of the message, isn't it? So why is there no mention of faith and believing here? I wish we could open up to the audience. Huh? <laughs> there you go. We're stumped. We're avoiding eye contact. <laughs> well, I, I, you have an answer, John. Well, I have a suggestion. Yeah. Just a suggestion. Is, and that is this. That the Lord Jesus spoke different things to different people. So you don't have actually the clear mention of sin to a Nicodemus as much as you do to the clear dealing with sin with the woman at the, uh, at the well. Why the differences? Again, it's the reading of the audience. You see, this audience is not an audience that is at the point of salvation. This is an audience that's still fighting over the issue of repentance. And so, sometimes we push people to believe. Especially new people come in and they hear a message. You need to believe. They're going, what do I need to believe? I don't have a clue. They don't even know the gospel. And you're coming to the end for somebody now who is the issue. They've got the clear gospel. They understand it all. And, they've, and there's repentance in there. They're, that's when the Lord Jesus... So that you have the difference when you come to Acts chapter 16. There's a man who is, he's had a face-to-face -face with eternity. He's desperately convicted. He's troubled. He wants to be saved. That's when you have the clear statement. So being selective on when we take up the issue of faith, it actually might help us. Might help us in the long run with a tremendous problem we have that everybody struggles with believing. Maybe it's because of our preaching. We should maybe take ownership a little bit for that. I know that's human pride, and we all want to have some part of it, even have a part in our believing. But just in terms of, I sense the responsibility to be careful on that whole side of it and be selective as to when do we come to those points. Just on that, that note, John, because I would agree, um, you mentioned clear Bible verses that are gospel verses, clear gospel verses. Um, both to, to sisters and brothers dealing with people one-on-one -on -one in conversations, quoting Bible verses, a great thing to do, and to, to brethren who have the responsibility to publicly preach from time to time, learn the context of the Bible verses that you're quoting in the gospel. Okay, so yes, there are verses that, that just almost stand on their own for the presentation of the gospel. They're a clear gospel text, but learn the context of where that text is, because then you'll be able not only to use it more effectively as a tool in conversation or in preaching, but if the person asks you to show that to them and asks you questions about it, you're not left fumbling and bumbling, wondering uh, if the verse actually means what you said it meant. And an example of that, from what John has just said, is Acts 16. 
So Acts 16 to 31 is so often used in the gospel, and rightly, often used rightly, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. But what is the context of that? You take that verse out of its context in Acts 16, and you come to a person with very little familiarity with their, the, the message, the, the basis of the gospel, sin, righteousness, God being righteous, us being sinners, the, the difficulty that presents, the distance from God, the need for reconciliation, the work of the Lord Jesus, and so on. They're totally unfamiliar with all of that. And you say to them, if you want peace with God, rest in your soul, certainty of a home in heaven, here's all you need. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Is that the gospel? It's interesting that the man to whom those words were spoken was a man who was absolutely shattered and had been brought to a point in his experience spiritually where he was crying out saying, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? That's the man to whom these words came, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Knowing the context of a gospel verse is going to be of immense value in using that verse in spreading the gospel. Now, according to the clock at the back, we have another six hours. It's 10.25, <laughs> but I think we have five minutes. Until half past, is it, or is it over? Oh, I'm sorry. I thought it went until half past, like yesterday. No problem? He gets angry. He already told us he, he already told angry. Oh. <laughs> his I don't family is going to take the brunt of his anger tonight because we went over time. I'm staying at his house. <laughs> It'll be awful. No, it's just uh, the presentation of the message. Just take time to look at that, and you will note some of the things, simple things like, he addresses the audience. Ye, like, look at the people and address the people. It's not we're not trying to get through a message. We're trying to get a message through mm -hmm. to people, to look at them, to recognize them. Not to be looking above their heads, but to look at them and to work with them. And you see all those kinds of nonverbal things even here in the book of the Acts that the Spirit mentions for us. And so may God help us all to learn to preach the gospel and to love it more. Mm -hmm.